just to give another quick plug for the prayer team, uh, if this is something that you're interested in joining in, it's a great way to serve the church. Whether you feel like you're particularly gifted in prayer or not, um, it is a great way to serve. So if you're interested in that, you can find either Daniel Mason, who I don't think is here today, or Joel Goldstein. I don't know if you want to just raise your hand. Um, sorry to embarrass you. So you can find him if you're interested um, in joining the prayer team. So I'm excited to dive into the message that God has for us this morning. Uh, so I'm going to open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather um, to worship your holy name. I pray that the, the words of this message would not be my own, but that they would be yours, that you would speak to our hearts and our souls because we recognize that your word has the ability to transform. I thank you for your grace and for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm curious how many of us in here have ever overestimated our abilities at something or ever thought that we were better at something than we actually are and have come to learn the hard way our incompetence. I can guess that probably most people in the room have had an experience like this. A couple summers ago, I spent a few months in Scotland working for a church. About a week or two into my time there, yeah, I thought about wearing the, the kilt and the orange hair, but my wife said it would be too much. But a, couple, a week or two into my time there, I'm asked by a woman at the church um, about whether I play golf. Now, to this point, I had never played a full round of golf before. But growing up, once a year, I would go to the driving range with my grandpa and just try to hit the balls as far as I could. And I shouldn't forget to mention countless games of miniature golf, too. But basically, I had next to no experience playing actual golf. So I'm asked by this woman in the church whether I play golf. To this day, I still do not know what compelled me to say, yeah, I play a little bit. And to my horror, she responds with, oh, great, I'll put you down for our big church charity tournament next week then. My initial reaction was, oh, no, this is not going to turn out well. But over the next week, I started rehearsing in my head all those days that I had gone to the driving range with my grandpa. I started replaying over and over my most incredible hole-in-one miniature golf shots. So by the time the tournament rolled around, I had thoroughly convinced myself that I was going to do okay. Now, I didn't expect to finish in the top 10 spots by any means, but I thought I could give some of these Scots a run for their money. Even as I say this out loud, it just sounds dumber and dumber. But I was confident going to this tournament, there were about 40 people, and I was excited until after my first shot. Now, for those of you who have never played golf before, the goal of the game is to hit the golf ball as straight as you can towards a hole. Now, it doesn't sound too difficult, right? I thought so too. So I'm up to hit my very first shot. There's a number of people watching, so the pressure's on. And I wind up to swing, trying to hit it. I'm ready to hit the ball as hard as I can. And remember, it's supposed to go straight. So I swing through and shank. The ball goes flying off at like a 90-degree angle. I didn't even know it was possible to hit a ball at such an angle off of your club. So it goes flying off perpendicular to where I wanted to hit it. I don't think it made it more than five feet off the ground. It goes skipping onto the fairway of hole four or five. And it was so incredibly embarrassing. And unfortunately, it did not get much better than that. And this was, this was pretty indicative of how the entire tournament went for me. I think I lost somewhere between 15 and 20 balls and only ever managed to hit one ball onto the fairway. It was a train wreck, and all because I overestimated my golf skills and I convinced myself that I was going to be okay. 
It's funny, though, how we manage to get ourselves into these situations, right, where we, we overestimate ourselves. Well, more than likely, most of us are sitting here overestimating our abilities at something that has yet to be put to the test. I find this is usually the case when curling comes around on the Winter Olympics. It often looks much easier than I'm sure it is. But the story that we'll be diving into today is about a man who is no different than us. It's about a man who overestimates himself and convinces himself that he's going to be okay when he is really not. His name is Pontius Pilate. So we're going to be diving into Matthew 27 today, looking at verses 11 through 26. Uh, if you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen or in one of the, the pew Bibles. So starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, the so-called Messiah? For he knew that it was only out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. But the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, the so-called Messiah? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, But why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having whipped Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Do we believe Pilate's confidence in his own innocence? Because our tradition places an incredible amount of guilt on the man who in this passage seems to have convinced himself that he is okay and innocent. I mean, what we see here in our passage is just a man who seems to be at the wrong time, at the wrong, or at the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Pilate was just caught up in the wrong mess. Because when we read this passage at first glance, Pilate actually doesn't seem to be that bad of a guy. I mean, sure, he is a provincial governor for Rome, but he doesn't appear in this text to be an unjust ruler by any means. Because when the religious leaders of the Jews bring Jesus before Pilate to have him tried, Pilate is the only one to actually recognize Jesus' innocence. He is even amazed by Jesus. So do we believe that Pilate is actually innocent? I'm going to try to paint the scene for us in vivid colors and bring it alive. So I want you to try to imagine, as I describe the scene, imagine yourself as if you are in this courtroom scene watching this encounter between Pilate and Jesus. 
As the man Jesus is brought into the courtroom, Pilate sits on his judgment seat and his curiosity begins to grow. The accusations of this man in front of him are serious. He is accused of claiming the title King of the Jews, which is a direct threat to Rome. However, this man standing in front of Pilate is not like any of the other men he has sentenced for leading revolts or opposing the great Roman Empire. As he is questioned, this this man does not speak with the venom or fire that other revolutionaries do. Instead, he stands with his head bowed in silence, as if he is resigned to some fate or judgment that is yet to be announced. So after hearing a list of charges, Pilate decides to address Jesus directly, asking, is it true what these religious leaders accuse you of? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus slowly lifts his head and stares into Pilate's eyes, piercing him with a look of pain and Compassion? Pilate is sure that he has glimpsed a look of compassion, a look of understanding and empathy that he has never and would never have received from any other prisoner he was about to condemn, but he has seen it. And as Jesus' gaze seems to pierce Pilate to his very soul, Jesus responds for the first time, you have said so. Pilate can hardly believe his ears. He has never received such an answer before. The words were spoken with more humility than a king could possibly have claiming his own title and with more grace than a prisoner could have responding to his own accusations. Pilate is amazed at this man and knows immediately that he is innocent. Pilate can see why the religious leaders are jealous of him and he now knows that their accusations are motivated by nothing more than envy and hatred. And so Pilate schemes up a way to release Jesus without inciting the religious leaders to anger and rioting. So Pilate, sure that his plan is going to work, he knows that each year at this time, it was custom for the crowd to release one prisoner that they they chose. So Pilate chooses to give the crowd the choice between releasing Jesus, the man who he knew was innocent, or Barabbas, one of the most hated and villainous men in Jerusalem. Pilate, who is cunning enough to offer an obvious choice, is sure that Jesus will be released. Pilate, who is lost now in his thoughts about who this man could possibly be, is brought back to reality by the chanting of the crowd saying, We want Barabbas! We want Barabbas! Pilate, confused and taken aback by their chanting, asks again, hoping that they will change their mind, Which of these two do you want me to release for you? And again, they chant, Barabbas, Barabbas. Pilate, dumbfounded and overwhelmed by their response, cries out in his last attempt to free this innocent man who he knew deserved freedom more than the murderous villain Barabbas. So he cries out, what then would you have me do with Jesus, the so-called Messiah? To his horror, the crowd cries out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate confused and scared for the fate of this man, Jesus, though even more terrified for his own fate and conscience, asks in a final futile attempt, why? What evil has this man done? I find no guilt in him. But the crowd only grows louder and more violent as they scream, crucify him, crucify him. Things begin to move in slow motion as Pilate's head reels. 
He knows that there is something different and even exceptional about this man, Jesus. He holds and speaks with such grace, compassion, and authority that Pilate has never before witnessed. He knows that Jesus is innocent. But then all of the fears begin to reign in his head. If he doesn't appease the crowd's wishes, then he would have a full-scale riot on his hands. Rome would hear about it, and he would most certainly lose his career, if not lose his very life for his incompetence. His main job was to keep the peace, but if he could not do even that, then he would lose everything. Should he really have to risk his career, his reputation, his livelihood, his control of the situation, all just so that he can release this innocent man? Was it really worth it? As the fears begin to take over, the thought, this thought of self-sacrifice begins to seem all the more crazy and ridiculous. Why the heck would he risk his career, his wealth, his reputation, his livelihood, his control, all just to relieve his conscience? Pilate's anger begins to grow as he thinks about the ridiculousness of this situation and how it shouldn't be his job to protect this man's innocence against the violent mob at the expense of his own livelihood. This is not what Pilate signed up for. He would wash his hands clean of the mess. As the crowd continues to cry out, a riot seeming imminent, Pilate screams for silence. Pilate walks over to a bowl of water in front of his judgment seat, knowing that everyone in the crowd, including Jesus, are watching him intently. He dips his hands into the water and begins washing them, knowing that to the Jews, the custom of washing one's hands in court was an act of self-declared innocence. As Pilate lifts his hands from the water, letting the last drops of it fall back, he declares, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. As Pilate turns to walk out of the courtroom, he can't bear to look Jesus in the eyes. It was too bad that Jesus was going to be crucified, but it isn't fair that Pilate should have to sacrifice everything for this man. Pilate would do his part required by Rome, which was to whip the prisoner, but the rest of the guilt was on the crowd. Pilate thought himself to be as innocent and as pure as sheep's clothing compared to the sins of the crowd and the religious leaders. His hands were clean. His hands were innocent. And so Pilate convinced himself that he was going to be okay. Pilate's story is a tragedy in more ways than we could probably number. It's a tragedy that Pilate thought himself to be innocent of Jesus' blood, convincing himself that he was okay and all the while overestimating his innocence. Pilate is oblivious to the fact that his innocent hands are actually stained the deepest color of crimson red. Pilate had no idea that it was not the names of the religious leaders, it was not the names of the people in the crowd, but that it was his name that we would remember for 2,000 years and recite in our creeds, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Not even all the water in the Nile River could wash Pilate's hands clean. Again, though, at, at first glance, 
Pilate seems to be a decently fair guy. What do we do with this? I mean, he, he just seems to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And we think to ourselves, you know, can't we give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt? I mean, he tried to do the right thing, especially compared to the crowd and the religious leaders. He seems like he was all in all a pretty good guy. But this is the issue. Pilate compares his innocence to that of the crowd and the religious leaders when he washes his hands declaring his innocence. Pilate thoroughly deludes himself into thinking that he is actually innocent. Pilate, but what Pilate does not realize is that as he declares himself to be innocent, he is standing in the presence of a holy God. As Pilate condemns the only truly innocent man that has ever lived and will ever live, that he has the audacity to declare that he himself is innocent. Standing face to face with the holy God who is incarnate in the man, Jesus, Pilate declares his own innocence. Pilate declares that he is okay, that he is a pretty good person, convincing himself that he has cleansed his hands of the blood that actually stains too deep to be washed by any mere water. Now this is a tragedy. And it's easy for us to point a finger at Pilate But the reality is that we do exactly the same thing every day of our lives, except in less dramatic fashion. I mean, unless some of you practice washing your hands and declaring your innocence each morning. I don't know. I won't judge. But many of us also overestimate our innocence. We we often convince ourselves or delude ourselves into thinking that we can get along in life okay. And we all like to think, hey, I'm a pretty good person. We acknowledge that we're not perfect by any means, but then we trick ourselves into thinking that we can become the best versions of ourselves, covering up our imperfections simply by adding in better routines and more activities, trying our hardest at self-improvement. We live in a culture that is all about self-improvement and self-betterment. We live in a culture that is all about being the best you that you can be. Now in itself, I don't think that any of these practices are inherently bad. But they're dangerous because slowly over time, they allow us to convince ourselves, like Pilate, that we can do okay on our own, that we can wash our own hands clean. And so we climb the ranks in our careers. We make more money. We work out. We meditate. We practice thinking positive thoughts. We buy a new car. We buy another house. We do charity work. We come to church. We join a small group. We do a Bible study. And again, none of these are bad things. God can and does use these things to demonstrate his grace. But the issue is that the way our culture talks about self-improvement convinces us of the lie that we can do okay on our own just by thinking the right way or by practicing the right routines and activities. And so we convince ourselves that if we add in any of these practices or activities to our lives, that we are truly becoming better people. But self-improvement will never wash the dirt from our own stained, guilty hands. And in church, the word that we use for this is sin. And talking about sin often makes us kind of uncomfortable, makes us squirm a little bit in our seats, and for good reason. I'm sure some of you are already plotting your quickest exit route to the door. When we talk about sin, we aren't just referring to, to certain actions that we do which are wrong, but we're talking about a disease that's part of the human condition, A disease which runs so deep we often don't realize it's there. But it's a disease which causes us to act selfishly 
and to hurt other people with our words and our actions, whether we intend to or not. In short, sin is what is common to us all and prevents us all from living a perfect, morally good life no matter how hard we try. Sin bends our focus inward and away from God. And sin is often a reality that we try to escape from like Pilate did because we would rather focus on the positive of what we aren't rather than the negative of what we are. And so we compare ourselves to others in church and in the world. And we do this to make us a little more comfortable with ourselves. And so, so we think to ourselves, well, at least I'm not as bad as that Doug Schoenberger guy or that Ryan Cagno. And I, I do this more frequently than I would care to admit. And when I do this, when I play this comparison game, I try to convince myself that I'm a pretty good person comparatively. And I lull myself into thinking that I'm okay. And I delude myself into thinking, like Pilate, that my hands are actually innocent and clean. I try to justify myself by comparing my standards to the standards of others. But if that doesn't work, then I try to improve myself by adding in more activities and routines, saying, hey, look at me. I'm becoming a better person, right? But the issue with sin, and the reason why talking about it should make us squirm a little bit, is that our goodness, so to speak, our innocence, is not compared to the goodness and the innocence of other people, but it's compared to the holiness of God. And compared to the holiness of God, we are all desperately helpless, broken, dirty, and stained. Paul writes in Romans, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not fallen short of the standard of your next-door neighbor, not fallen short of the standard of that guy on the news, but fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and compared to God, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Basically, Isaiah is saying that the best, most righteous deeds that we could ever possibly conjure up on our own are no better than the equivalent of a dirty diaper compared to the holiness of God. That is how holy God is. You see, Pilate's problem was that he declared his innocence in comparison with the violent and bloodthirsty crowd. And he convinced himself that he was okay. But Pilate never realized that compared to the holiness, innocence, perfection, grace, and beauty of the holy incarnate God who was standing in front of him, that Pilate's hands were the deepest shade of crimson red. Compared to the holiness of God, all of our hands are the deepest shades of dirt brown and blood red. For this reason, Jesus died on our behalf. He chose to come into the world to pay the price for our sins, to die a death that he did not deserve, also that we did not have to. Jesus' blood is on our hands. God's holiness sheds a light on our hands that reveals how deep the dirt goes and how stained they really are. Our hands are no more and no less stained than Pilate's. But thank goodness the story does not end here. Thank goodness the story does not end with Pilate's bloody hands Thank goodness the story does not even end with Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. But the story ends in resurrection. The story ends in redemption. 
Even death was not able to contain Jesus' holiness. And the story does not end for Pontius Pilate after we stop reading his name in Scripture. Pilate's story does not end there because we know that Jesus Christ, the innocent man whom Pilate washed his hands of, whipped, and then allowed to be crucified, all to save his own career, reputation, and money, this very man whom Pilate wronged, died in Pilate's place and paid the price for Pilate's sins so that Pilate might be able to experience grace, forgiveness of sins, and truly clean hands that mere water cannot cleanse. Now, we don't know much about how Pilate's life actually ended, and we can't know for sure whether he ever had the joy of experiencing the forgiveness of his sins or the joy of coming face to face with a holy God whom he sentenced to death yet still chooses to love him anyway. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus died for Pilate in hopes that he would truly be cleansed. We know that Jesus died for the religious leaders and for the crowd that shouted crucify him. We know that Jesus died even for the murderous villain Barabbas. Jesus' dying breath on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus died so that you and I might experience truly clean hands. And so that we might know the depths of God's love and grace for us. So that we might know that God was not content to leave us with our hands stained the way that they are. He did not hold us at arm's length, but brought us close to himself. And he whispers to each and every one of us in this room, I forgive you, my beloved child. And so Pontius Pilate's final question still hangs in the air. What then shall I do with Jesus, the so-called Messiah? Are we satisfied living such busy and exhausting lives which we convince ourselves are good enough? Are we satisfied with the ways that we try to just get along in life and the ways we've settled for okay in our jobs, our relationships, our money? God desires for us to live a life that is more than just okay. Jesus came so that we might have life to the fullest, yet too often we settle for okay. We still try to wash our own hands clean and cover the dirt with more routines and better activities. We overestimate ourselves and we, often, and we more often like to think of ourselves as pretty good people rather than people who are in need of God's grace every hour and every minute of the day. Because here's the thing, pretty good people don't need Jesus. But those who are lost, broken, and desperately thirsty for grace and truly clean hands, these are the people that Jesus came to save. Now a quick disclaimer before I close. As Pilate recognized, living a life to the fullest, the way that Jesus calls us to live, is dangerous. It's dangerous to our careers, to our reputations, to our money, to our sex lives, to our habits, to our lifestyles. Jesus has a knack for asking difficult things of his followers and for jostling our all-too-comfortable ways of living. There is no half-in when it comes to Jesus. Pilate tried to hold on to his career, his reputation, his money, and his control, all while trying to do right by Jesus but he was unable to, and so Pilate settled for okay. So too with us, 
Clinging to Jesus means ceasing to trust in those activities that we use to convince ourselves are good enough to wash our hands clean. It means letting go of the busy routines that allow us to ignore our guilt before God. It means letting go of thinking that we are pretty good people apart from God's grace. And this is, this is a difficult thing to do, and I recognize that. But it's not our task to do alone. Let us not overestimate ourselves and settle for lives that can only ever be just okay apart from God's transforming grace and love. Because the good news is that while Jesus and his holiness may be dangerous to our busy and exhausting ways of living, he has nothing but grace to lavish upon our souls. He has nothing but pure living water to cleanse our dirty, sinful hands with. Our dirty, bloody hands no longer have to identify us But instead, our identity is as a child of God who has been cleansed. Will we choose to live like that? Will we choose to let God clean our hands rather than attempting to do it ourselves? When we connect with and encounter Jesus, just as Pilate did, we realize simultaneously how stained and dirty our hands are, but also how glorious Jesus' grace is. And the reason that we need to reflect on our brokenness, our inadequacies, and the ways that we try to cover it up, no matter how uncomfortable it is, is because our brokenness points us to our need for a Savior. Our brokenness points us to our need for Jesus and Jesus' healing, cleansing water. When we fully recognize how dirty and stained our hands really are, it is then that we are able to experience the fresh healing and redemption that is poured over our hands. And we don't do this alone either. We do it in community with one another as we all confess together our brokenness and we all receive Jesus' grace together. I can guarantee you that you are not alone in this room in what you struggle with. And so church is not a place where we have to come with our acts together, but church becomes a hospital for sinners. We are all in recovery and all working together encouraging each other as we receive healing from our great and loving physician, Jesus. We worship a God who is not satisfied with leaving us at okay. He desires life and healing for us all. We find this when we encounter Jesus, the so-called Messiah. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we'll have a quick moment or two of um, silent prayer and reflection or prayer and reflection with someone near you. Uh, there will also be some people at the cross if, um, if you would like to pray with them. Or if, if this is one of your first times at church and any of this is new or confusing, um, they would also be happy to talk with you about any of that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for your grace. And even though we are so undeserving of it, you love us enough to bring us close to yourself, to whisper to each and every one of us, that you forgive us. And we pray as, as we reflect both on our brokenness but on your amazing grace, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our souls, that you would remind us that it is not our stained hands that define us, but it is your love for us which defines us. We thank you so much for your love and for your grace.